0: What's your uh, very favorite uh, track with *Return to Forever
1: that you play them? Hmm. I look at it as, as a body of work. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Where Have I Known You Before is a great record. There's parts of No Mystery. That's a great, that, that were great compositions and contributions. Romantic Warrior. So I, I look, I look at it as a body of work, the whole thing. I mean, I don't know if I have a favorite. Um, I liked what I played on Celebration Suite. I liked what I played on Flight of the Newborn. I like what I played on uh, um, Song to the Pharaoh Kings. Captain senior Mouse. I, I see, so like. I mean see I was growing I was growing so when you say a favorite that means that's just the end there's no end I'm still growing man you know so I don't I don't have a a favorite I haven't done it yet
0: mm-hmm. Well Lenny why did uh, the group sort of go its separate ways and you know um, obviously Stanley got very much into recording his own records and you did your own records and was it just a need to grow?
1: Uh, well, yes, I, th- I think it was, um, but I'm not sure if I can say that that's the reason why there was a split. What happens with, with bands, to a certain degree, they become limiting to certain people within the group. If any band that had however many people that they have in the band, if all those members could see it as a particular entity that you go in and out of then those things can survive. But if an artist within a band says, well, this is too limiting for me with my scope, then the band no longer exists because they have to leave. I think it would have been great and we would have continued if everybody would have had that position, that, that mindset. Uh, because a band is the greatest dynamic that you can go out and, into the world with. A successful band is unlike anything else. It's amazing. Because of the dynamics within a band, it's like a small culture. It's like a small society. And all the different ways that each, peop- each person in the band plays off of each other helps create the music and the style that they create and those things continue to morph. But I don't know. I wish that would be the case, you know, and it would be because we need, we need bands. We need, especially this society needs some direction.
0: Well, yeah. So the whole, uh, you know, uh, uh, whole being greater than the sum of the parts thing with bands, yeah. Um, You had uh, your first solo record in '75, "New Zealand Summer." Um, Were you happy with how that turned out? Were you excited? You know, what what was your mindset
1: with that record? I was extremely excited. I mean, um, I listened back. To it now, and I mean, it still was, for me, it was a great record. Um, to have Demiola and Coriel Coriel was Demiola's mentor. And to have them play on a record together, was was great. Fantastic, you know. Um, to have Larry Young play with me, on a record because he had played well we had played together on on Brew, but he had played with Tony Williams in Lifetime, you know. Um Hubert Laws played on that. Onaj Allen Gums. Great bassist Doug Roush. We we miss him. Um but there were it was great man. I mean I it got me an opportunity to to, to express myself musically. And to tell people what I was into, and on those records, I mean, on that record, I was playing funk music, I had some orchestral music, I had, you know, some rock out, I, mean, I just really exposed who I am. You know, I'm, I'm not musically myopic, I, uh, I listen to everything, and try to funnel everything into what it is that's my approach.
0: I'm I'm looking here to see, were you still doing a lot of other session work at that time, or were you really focusing on your own thing
1: right at that time? We were in, we were still in Return to Forever. That was a very interesting and unique situation. We had, when we did Romantic Warrior, and when we signed to Columbia, it was the first time that you had four individuals in a band with totally different contracts and a band contract. The band contract on one label and the individuals having their own separate deals on different labels. So it was pretty unique. Um, But we were still... See, that's what I'm saying. That's that's what was really interesting and deep. We got an opportunity to do all of what we want to do and still be a part of a band and I think that but it's short-lived yeah that's a real great great way to grow and not only does the individual artist grow but the band grows also so yeah I was still doing sessions I was doing sessions with a lot of different people but I was still in return to forever too
0: so during that time when you were in both were you able to go out and do any of your own material live
1: or? Uh... Well, no, I, I I waited until um, I left Return to Forever to do my own material live. mean, mm-hmm. we, we had done some of my material in Return to Forever, Sorceress was my contribution in Return to Forever, Funk and Sorceress. And so, um i had gotten i was the best of both worlds i had gotten some of my music to for the band to play some of my music too
0: right so you ended up doing two records um for nipper records and then you made the switch to electra um and that i think got you greater or a stronger uh, promotion i want to say or support from a label standpoint um, is that so? why you made the change, or what happened
1: there? No, I mean, what happened was someone wants to give you an opportunity to uh, make your own music. Uh, you go with that opportunity. Um, I had gotten a better opportunity with Electra, and they let me do what it is I wanted to do, and uh, so that's why I did it.
0: I happen to have uh, CD copies of some of these here, so I'm going to hold them
1: up. Wow! All so, right. Do you Astral know? Pirates. That that cover was Michael Kaluta, who's a great comic artist, and you know that's yeah, that's a special. You know that that was a uh, a story that I wrote with Don Mizell, who was uh, the head of Electra at the time, and It was a theme-oriented record, just like Return to Forever's uh, uh, Romantic Warrior was a theme-oriented record. So basically, it was music that was written for a particular story. And the Astro Pirates record was.
0: It's a great record, I mean, it it rocks hard.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it it does, it does, it does.
0: (laughs) What... um... Was it hard to market that record because of you know it's sort of uh, not being jazz, not being rock, not being funk? It was just kind of its own thing.
1: You mean music?
0: Yeah. Was it hard? Was it hard? <laughs> well, exactly.
1: Yeah. Oh, you mean music? Was but that? You know,
0: but you know how yeah, they that want to slot everything.
1: Right. But see, that's that just proves the point. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard to market music. The fact is. What should be the marketing uh, model for music is it's honest. That's what it should be. It shouldn't be a thing that like it's this or that or whatever. But of course, anytime you take progressive music like that, that doesn't, well, we did have vocals, but progressive music that doesn't relate from the vocal standpoint, is going to be hard to to market.
0: So I, I mentioned, uh, I don't think I said while we were on the um, show, but this is the one that brought me to you because of you know my age bracket. But um, and out here, everyone can see it streamlined. yeah. Um, this record was uh, not quite as, I mean, it was more accessible, let's just say, a little bit more than the, than the Pirates one. Um, more emphasis on RB funk, and vocals. Was that, um, were you pushed by the label in that direction or was it still all you wanted to do artistically?
1: I was never pushed by the label in any direction. All of those records were my, uh, uh, it was my direction. Um, I got major flack for that record. I got more flack for that record than I did Uh, Astro Pirates, because I (laughs) I took sacred music and messed with it. I took Lady Madonna.
0: Hey, Shaka Khan's on there.
1: That's right. I took Lady Madonna and did a take of Lady Madonna. And a radio station in Cleveland or someplace actually had people call in. They played my version and and played the Beatles version and, and asked the audience, which did you like better? That's sacred music, are you kidding? Oh, so I got a lot of flack for doing that. So, but it was my reach to take something that I had heard or enjoyed or liked and do it my way. So, I mean, And it's very weird because critics of people doing that will say, oh, he's selling out because he did a Beatle tune. But they said that to Miles. They said, oh, he's selling out because, you know, this record, Bitches Brew, it's like it's not what he used to do. You know, it has, you know, like rock beats and all this stuff like that. But if you listen to that music, it is nothing like what. Regular rock beats are, wow. and like this is nothing like what the Beatles did with Lady Madonna. I mean, that's a I knee-jerk, superficial reaction. Well, that's right. But the fact is, you know, I, I come. My first record was Bitches Brew. So that I mean, ever since then, I've always been uh, in a situation where I want to kind of flip the music that I work on. You know, actually, right now as we speak. Um, I'm doing a record with Miles Davis's nephew, Vince Wilburn, and the Miles Davis Electric Band, and I've done a rehash of Bitches Brew that it will be coming out because it's been 50 years. So, oh, cool. Yeah,
0: but will that be yeah. out this this year or next year?
1: Uh, maybe, maybe late this year or early next year. It depends upon cool. if we finish it in time. So,
0: how, how did you uh, hook up with Shaka Khan,
1: for that? Uh, there was a mutual friend that we had, and he came by to see me when I was in LA, and she came to the the house where we were rehearsing, and she heard that, and she said, "Oh, I want to be on this." And I said, "Are you kidding? Sure, mm-hmm. let's do this." I had met her in an airport in north carolina i'm walking through the airport we'll be returning forever and i hear somebody say lenny white I you, she said shaka khan rufus that's how i met her in the airport <laughs> so,
0: I think, well let's see this was uh 78 so i was right around the time when she was starting to explore her solo career
1: yeah mm-hmm. yeah
0: but i mean uh great tracks in here strutting um earthlings 12 bars from mars You kind of had a little bit of that space theme still going. Uh, Time.
1: It was a good band. Marcus Miller. Yeah. Yeah. uh, Nick Morrock, Donald Blackman, Denzel Miller. Uh, It was real, real. uh, uh, And Jamie Glazer played in that band also.
0: So what would you think they would say uh, how Lenny White was in the studio
1: with them? (laughs) You got to ask them.
0: (laughs) Well, what would you, you describe
1: No, I was, you know, the fact is, I've always been uh, someone who really relishes contributions from the other people that I'm working with. I mean, you know, like, no one can really do it themselves. But sometimes a contribution from somebody gets you to think differently about what it is that you were going to try to do. So I relish that. I mean, and like, you know, all of those guys turn out to be fantastic musicians on their own. And, you know, that music wouldn't have sound that way if, you know, I just dictated to everybody what to play. No way. I've never been like that. I mean, I've never been in those kinds of situations.
0: Did you tend to push for a lot of takes or just, hey, hit it and quit it or
1: what? Well back then, you know there were some young guys that were, were not studio worthy and it took a lot of takes for <laughs> things to, to happen. But they they learned and progressed and became some fantastic studio musicians.
0: And then on the next one, you actually started calling them a 29.
1: Well I was 29.
0: 29 was what, what was the significance of that number?
1: I was 29.
0: Okay. That makes <laughs> sense. This record though. Um, I mean, gave you really your first big uh, like black radio hit
1: um, peanut butter Donald Blackman. I mean, I had done the record and Donald Blackman came and said, listen, man, I got one more tune for you to listen to. I think you should do this tune. And he played me peanut butter. And I said, Mm, if I do this, am I going to have to play this for the rest of my life? (laughs) Mm. And I did it, and it became a huge hit. hit. But that's Donald Blackman, definitely.
0: Um, Did that change your life at all, just having this whole new audience?
1: Well, to a certain degree, it did, yes. I mean, I'll tell you how it changed my life. I did a tour with... It was Prince's very first tour of the United States. It was Rick James, Prince, and Lenny White, and we uh, did—I don't know—maybe twenty dates, and and so like it changed my life. I played huge coliseums. It wasn't—I mean, I had done that with Return to Forever, but playing my own music and playing, like, you know, a hit tune that was being played on the radio and, you know, all that. It was totally different. Yes, it was a big change for me. How uh,
0: jazzy did you get on those sets? You know,
1: did the audience take it? No, 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 no. They were getting popcorn, not, you know. Not, we were playing our stuff until we played our hit. When we played our hit, then everybody was jamming with that, you know. But, you know, I'm the, the whole point is, what I played was what I play. And it was my version of these popular musical styles that people listen to. But still, it was still my version of that. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, that particular tour, though, I mean, Rick James and Prince, that's kind of a his legendary tour because there was a rift that developed between them, supposedly, and all that. Did you see any tension between those guys?
1: Uh, Yeah. Yes, yes. It was very interesting. It was very interesting. But then again, sometimes those riffs or those things that cause contention help the music because you have to be on your toes. You can't half-ass anything. You got to go for it. And somebody gets in your butt and makes you go for it. And the, the music is incredible.
0: So who, who uh, kicked ass more on stage at that point, in your opinion, Prince or Rick James? Say it again? I said, who kicked more butt on stage at that time, in your opinion, Prince or Rick James?
1: No comment. <laughs> All
0: right,
1: yeah. fair enough. It's, it's, it's not right for me to comment with people that are not here anymore. So All right, fair enough.
0: Um, I saw them both back then, so I first I would say first initially Rick James did and then Prince
1: elevated his game. Yes, he did. Yeah. Very much so. Um
0: this was the next one, and you had another huge hit with kid stuff.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Kept it coming. No, I, I again that was my I, I as I said, I listen to all kinds of music. My my whole thing is how can I get what it is that I hear to be accessible for everybody. It's not, how can I make accessible music? That's not my point. Everything that I hear, all all the the things that I hear that turn out to be comes accessible, they were not done because I wanted to make accessible music. It was the music that I heard, and I tried to make the music that I heard accessible. And now that really just depends upon marketing.
0: Well, I see. Also, you were working with Larry Dunn back then. I've had him on the show too.
1: Well, he He did. He did uh, Streamline and Best of Friends with me.
0: What was it like working with him? I mean, he's such a consummate pro, isn't he?
1: I was great. See, I met those guys when I was in Azteca. They, 1970, is it 72? I think 1972, whatever. They went from Warner Brothers to CBS. And there was a convention in London at the Grosvenor House Hotel. And I was a part of Azteca and in the book Hitman, it's talked about Clive Davis having a new band that he was going to debut at midnight. I was in that band, that band was Azteca. And I got to meet all the guys in Earth Wind & Fire then. And so I've, I have known them for close to 50 years. I mean, and Larry, I met then along with Philip, And you know, we've been friends forever. And, you know, we talked about working together and we did.
0: Did you feel pressure once you did get a radio hit, though, to kind of keep them
1: going? Not really. Um, I felt pressure to always have an outlet to be able to play my music. And sometimes given that opportunity, you have to do things so that you will always have an outlet. Because without a voice, nobody hears you.
0: And the music industry was changing so much around that time from the 70s into the 80s. Uh, well, it was,
1: it was the, it, back then, it was the music business. Then it became the music industry. And just like any industry, an industry manufactures product. And that's what we have. Yeah.
0: Also, drum machines were coming in big around the early 80s, too. Was,
1: oh, yeah. Yeah.
0: How'd you feel about that?
1: Oh, I recognized that and said, okay, I'm going to learn how to program a drum machine because I'm not going to be obsolete. I'm not going to not have a job if they're going to do that and not use drummers anymore. So, no, I'm very, very well versed with all of that stuff. And that's what I'm saying. You know, I have a particular way of hearing my music and I want to use all the technical things that you know who I'm working with now which is really I mean he's an absolute great guy great is Daryl Jennifer from Bad Brains. Oh and he's he's a he's a real great guy man and we're making some really good music.
0: Wow is he still still favor the punk rock stuff the thrash
1: He's, no, I'm not saying nothing. I mean, it's really some good music. As I'm saying, it's some really good music.
0: How, how'd you guys connect?
1: He connected. He 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 went to my uh, page oh. and asked, would I do a session with him? I had found out that they were big Return to Forever fans. Hmm. And, you know, we talked about it. I mean, you know, and we continue to talk about it. And he said, Man, you never know who you influence, and you guys influence me really to a great degree. And you know, you never know, you know, that's what I'm saying. You just do what you do, and people get it. Not everybody may get it, but people get it.
0: Well, also, I think just I mean, a lot of people would be very surprised with how broad based a lot of musicians' tastes are and influences are just because they are known for producing a certain kind of music does not mean that that's that's all they're about.
1: Exactly, you said a mouthful right there, exactly. Because we as artists listen to each other. It's, it's not as cut and dry and, and uh, um, regimented as the music industry makes it. That's not the way musicians are
0: yeah you know lenny there's such a um close relationship between jazz and funk and uh so many of the great jazz artists from the 70s eventually you know either dabbled or eventually went like really heavy into funk what do you think that relationship is and why why is there such a close camaraderie if you will between funk and
1: jazz you see The best way for me to explain it, how how I look at it, is there are too many, uh, the, the definition of funk is clouded. Because when I was growing up, funk was James Brown. That's what it was. But I had heard the word funk or funky before James Brown, with Horace Silver, Filthy McNasty. For Horace Silver, that was called a funky groove. So the reason why it's connected is because it's the same music. That's the whole point. the The problem is when you want to sell something you market it a certain way. And if you think about it, cold sweat is a form of Miles Davis's, so what? So, I mean, you know, when you say, well, you know, funk and jazz, they're the same music. I guess the attitude is what makes something different. But basically it's the same music. And jazz guys have been playing things that were funky a long time ago before funk was slapping the bass. You know, I think that they are one and the same. It's the attitude of how you play something. This is what makes it funky. It's not a particular style of music. It's how you play something. Hmm. Classic, example, classic example is actual proof. Actual proof. Mike Clark was swinging. Mike Clark was playing straight ahead on that. All he was doing move, is moving beats. You talk with him about that, he will tell you. In his head, he heard him playing, swinging like Tony Williams. But now that's one of the funkiest joints out, see? So.
0: Yeah. So you and uh, the guys from Return to Forever, you crossed paths quite a bit uh, over the years, and uh, you worked on... Um, you were on Stanley's solo records, right? Somewhere.
1: Yeah, I produced one of his uh, solo records. We won a Grammy for it. There you go. Stanley so, Corbin. Yeah. Yeah. So. Then I did Echoes of an Era with Shaka Khan, with Chick and Stanley and, and uh, Freddie Hubbard and Joe Henderson. You know, through the years we've worked together. I mean, and then we got back together and um, I produced the Forever record that we won a Grammy for, because that was Chick Stanley and myself uh, as a trio, and we went out. So, I'm, you know, I've been working with my guys every once in a while.
0: Yeah, so, I mean, it's great that you guys have kept uh, on such friendly terms, you know. Um, you still yeah, consider I mean, them like your, your brothers, I'm,
1: I'm guessing? Yeah, we, we, we made music. We made great music together. Why should I not? think of them as being, you know, brothers. I mean, the contributions of what we did together, very, very long lasting, man.
0: When you guys got together um, in 2011, I think it was for Chick's 70th birthday, um, I saw you guys at the Blue Note. You did the acoustic set and Stanley was on the upright bass and that was terrific. Mm -hmm. I really enjoyed that.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we, we had a good time.
0: Uh, so much so that I actually, let's pick this up too.
1: Which, yeah, I, uh, I produced that too.
0: Yeah, very
1: cool. Uh, it's
0: got the video and the audio. Right, right. Yeah. So, um, of all these people you've worked with, I mean, what an amazing legacy you have, is there anyone in particular that leaps out? I mean, obviously Miles, uh, anyone else that leaps out that you just kind of had to pinch yourself and you're like, was such a thrill to, you know be in their presence?
1: Hmm. You know, I, I don't know, I, I don't know because I don't, I can't really say that because with the, ex- Miles of course, but with the exception of Miles, everybody else made it such a safe space to be in. That, you know, you don't think about that. I mean, Miles made it a safe space too, but he was Miles Davis. And that was my first record. You know what I mean? So the other situations musically that I've been in, um, they haven't warranted that kind of uh intrepidation or that oh man I don't know what I'm gonna do. They haven't been like that. So while I respect all of the musical collaborations that I've had, um I was in a safer space after Bitches brew.
0: Yeah. When you come out of the gate with a Miles collaboration, I guess it's kind of hard. It <laughs> yeah. kind of desensitizes you in a way.
1: I mean, I you know, I went from from doing that and then doing Red Clay with Freddie Herbert, which those records were like big records, you know, I mean, and so uh, I it, it kind of prepared me for, you know, uh, being in situations like that, you know, those, those, those two um instances.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah.
0: Well, Lenny, what would you say is your most unforgettable memory from the road? You know, whether it was just a huge crowd that was incredible, or maybe there was some like experience on the road that you'll never forget.
1: Well we returned to forever. This was uh 19, I think 75. We did not have a hit on pop radio. We did not have a singer in our band. And there was a Schaefer Music Festival during the summer in Central Park. And there was the Woolman Skating Rink in Central Park that held 7,000 people. And we did not have a singer in the band. And again, we did not have a hit single on the radio. And when they announced that Return to Forever was going to play at the woman's Skating Rink, 7,000 people came to the Woman Skating Rink and another 3,000 people tore down the fences. So there was 10,000 people in the Woman Skating Rink. And it was an amazing feat for us To play the music that we played and have 10,000, I mean, 7,000 people show up and pack the place, and then another 3,000 people break the fences down to hear this music. Larry Fishburne was in the audience. Mm -hmm. I mean, these people that now became big stars or whatever uh, came to hear this music. And that was, at that point, I knew that what we were doing was special. And that, that's, a, I have a picture of it. That's a lasting memory for me.
0: Did you guys uh, elevate your playing, you think, to a different level because of that?
1: We were always developing and elevating. That was the one thing. It, it, that didn't stop. When it stopped, that was because we were not doing it anymore. But as long as that band was together, that that's what was happening.
0: So it's pretty cool that th- that, that happened and, and the police didn't try to shut it down or there wasn't a riot was nothing, or something like that.
1: Nothing they could do. <laughs> that, that was um, the force of a following like that that's what made it special that was power and and that was lasting to me and all the conversations that i had with the guys in the band after that i recognized the power of that band
0: do you feel like the um Smooth jazz quiet storm format that swept in kind of like really put the dampers on on, You know enough people continuing to hear real quality jazz and also uh, it's continuing evolution
1: Yes That's marketing Yes, that's marketing Yes, that's marketing had nothing to do with music. Yeah. But um,
0: I think we're past that now.
1: I don't know. I I really don't know. I had a student say to me, um, and she she wore this very proudly. She said, today's generation. She said, our generation is going to be the first generation that will say that anybody can be become a musician. Yeah. No. <laughs> what does that say about the state of the music?
0: I, I don't even know how to
1: interpret that. Exactly right. Exactly <laughs> right. Um, okay.
0: <laughs> um, when you're as a drummer, whether it's jazz or um, funk or whatever, whatever style, what's more important, com- complexity or feel?
1: Well, the drums are a natural instrument, so you answer that question. Well, oh, feel. Thank you. That <laughs> it?
0: <laughs> but some people like to show off.
1: Yeah. Fine. Okay. But <laughs> it's about the feel.
0: Yeah. Well, it's always been about the feel for me personally. But right. Um, I think if you uh, have the chops and the feel, that's the ultimate, right there.
1: Good combination. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So, um, I appreciate all the time, and especially in the situation you're in there, I'm not sure <laughs> how, how convenient it is, but I want to wrap this up, but I do want to uh, just go back and touch on, you mentioned a couple of things that you're working on right now. Um, anything else that you're working on that we should have our antenna up for?
1: Well, I you know, I, I started uh, a venture. Um, I don't want to really call it a label, but uh, I've been putting out projects under my um, brand called IUE, I, U, um, E, and I have a few records out now, and there are a few more coming out. Uh, I did uh, a project. There's a project that Mike Clark and I did. Uh, 2004, I think, along with Stanley Clark, Victor Bailey, Robin Ford, uh, George Colligan, and Eddie Henderson and um, um, Kim Garrett that I probably will put out later on this year. Um, And I have a podcast, too. Uh, It's called the IUE Universe podcast, and you can get that where podcasts are uh, sold.
0: (laughs) How often do you do them?
1: How much? Oh, I've done, I don't know, maybe 15 or 16 now. I'm starting on my second uh, wave. I did Ron Carter, Mike Clark, Marcus Miller, um, Pat Gleason. I've done some pretty good, you know, Tane Watts. I've done some pretty good podcasts, and you know, you should check them out. Yeah, it's just it's just me talking with with my friends.
0: Uh-huh. You know,
1: but, uh huh. But very interesting, you know. I'm gonna do, you know, Daryl Jennifer from Bad Brains and some other other things, you know. So check them out when you get a chance. It's the IUE Universe, Lenny White, and the IUE Universe. Okay.
0: A 2004 session sounds incredible.
1: I'm trying to do, I'm trying to make good music. I'm trying to to be um, a brand for good music. I've made a lot of good music, and I'm trying to forward that and to still become a brand of good music. Yeah.
0: Is it a challenge as you uh, get older being a drummer?
1: Yes. Yes. Is this a
0: physical part of it?
1: It's a very physical instrument. I, I mean, for the past 10 years now, I've had a, a problem, um, and I thought that it was going to be something that I was not going to play anymore. Um, but, yeah, for the past 10 years, I've been working with, like, a, a spinal problem But I managed to get through it, and uh, continue to play, and I will always continue to play.
0: Excellent. Well, we love to hear it, Lenny. Um, So, what is there a website uh, or or somewhere where people can go and get all that information?
1: Yeah, I mean, well, the IUE uh, website is, you know, I, Y O U dot com, i u e.com. Um, and uh, I all I can say is stay tuned. There's a bunch of things gonna come out that are going to be very interesting for, for folks.
0: Outstanding. Hey, again, thank you so much. I really appreciate the time, and uh, man, thank you on behalf of everyone watching and listening. Thank you so much for all the fantastic music you've given to all
1: of us thank you and and to to everybody listening and watching thank you for supporting what it is that i do that's very very special and that's why i continue to do it
0: hey and we're back i left his perspective about music just being about music and not getting caught up in all the marketing bs also how musicians need to stay the course and be true to themselves because in particular music that moves the proverbial needle may be met with criticism and slow sales. you can't make a musical statement of potential influence and longevity if you just play it safe and that's a big part of what Truth and Rhythm is all about but I still get goosebumps thinking about him being in his teenage shoes as an integral part of the Milestone Bitches Brew Sessions incredible I want to again thank extend an enormous thanks to Mr. Lenny White who was gracious enough to participate while on vacation. And also sincere thank you as always to you, the viewers and supporters of the program. Again, a reminder, if you haven't already done so, subscribe to the Stuff channel on YouTube. That's where Truth and Rhythm lives and breathes. Tell a friend, tell family we need that support. Show these great jazz, R&B, funk, soul musicians that you appreciate what they've brought to us. So subscribe, support the program. Also email me, write me at scottg at scottg.funkestuff.net. Let me know what you would like to see um, in the show, who, who you'd like to see as guests, maybe um, a change of format. Whatever's on your musical mind, bring it forward. I'll definitely respond. And also, if you're a music artist that would like to be on the program, reach out to me as well, and we'll see if we can make it happen. And so it's time to wind it up. As always, this is Scott Dutcher GX find saying, keep on vibrating to the rhythm of the one. <laughs>